Welcome to Mission Matters, celebrating the people and initiatives that embody the Jesuit tradition of St. Louis University. Celebrating what matters in the 200-year-old mission that is SLU. Brought to you from the Office of Mission and Identity. In the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is criticized by the Pharisees and scribes because he's choosing to keep company with the riffraff of society. When they question him by asking, why do you eat and drink with these people? Jesus says in reply, those who are healthy do not need a physician, the sick do. The question often comes to us, who belongs and who doesn't? It's a difficult question particularly in these times right now. What if we could answer that question with who belongs, with you belong, we all belong? It seems a simplistic answer. Maybe an answer that's more faithful to our gospel lives as Christians would be, we belong to each other. Well, welcome back to Mission Matters. Uh, we are here again today, virtually, so we apologize up front for any of the audio blips that might be happening because we are doing this through Zoom instead of in person. Cannot wait until we can start to see people in person again. But we are here today with Dr. Mark Kassan, Assistant Professor of Higher, Ed Higher Educational Administration in the School of Ed, and Christine Lubert, who is the Director of the Ability Institute. So welcome to Mission Matters, uh, Mark and Christine. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So um, we would love to hear all about the Ability Institute. What is it? How did it come into being? What are your current projects, both on campus and even around the world, as I understand it? So just talk to us a little bit about your experience and the history and what you love about it. Great, thank you. Thank you for inviting us to this. We're, we always love to talk about the Ability Institute. The neat thing about this whole concept about the Ability Institute is it actually came out of our graduate programs in higher education administration. Um, Dr. Karen Myers, who um, is now Professor Emeritus, uh, a professor in higher education and founding director of the Ability Institute, had a course called Disability in Higher Education Society. And part of that course work that the students had to do was to create something, some kind of deliverable that showed their knowledge or, that they uh, acquired in that course. And it started with one student, uh, her name was Anne-Marie Carroll, and she thought, I'd like to create an idea about an exhibit where we could have people coming through an experience of what uh, disability education is, disability awareness, and how one could be an ally for those with disabilities. And so that happened or started around 10 years ago, and the course has been going on every semester. And as we develop other ideas and concepts, it's just evolved organically and we're now celebrating our 10th year on campus. So uh, there's three, I would say, three prongs that we've been uh, using. The first one has been the, the ability exhibit and that is actually a traveling physical exhibit that goes all over the world. It's been in a lot of the states on our continent, but actually in England and Ghana and Belize and England. So it's traveled around and we also have a workshop that we provide to those who are interested in to kind of dig a little deeper of what it means to be an ally for inclusion and uh, learn more about 
the history of the disability movement and how we can better be allies and supports for those with disabilities. And then the third arm is we've had uh, students that have a K-12 background and they wanted to say, what could we do to create a lesson plan, age specific, that can talk about disability uh, awareness and education and how they can become allies for inclusion uh, appropriate to that you know, kindergarten through uh, 12th grade. So those are our three major um, emphasis, I would say. So what are some of the things that people would experience if they are engaging with the exhibit or if they are taking one of these workshops? Sure. So a lot of it is just education and building awareness. So we, we have one section of our exhibit that talks about the whole disability movement, the historical perspective of it. And then we have pieces of the exhibit that talk about inclusive language, how you use first person language versus identity first language. We talk about hidden disabilities, silent disabilities, and folks that may not even be aware of what those disabilities are like. We talk about what does it mean to have universal design? So it's one thing for creating concepts and ideas that make everything accessible, but universal design is creating a place where everyone has access, where you don't have to have special processes to enter into a place, but everyone has the same access. And then the, one of our most popular parts of the exhibit is, who do you know? And that is probably our cornerstone exhibit pieces where the people that walk through the exhibit can look at signs that say, who do you know? Do you know someone with a visual disability? Do you know someone with, with a hearing disability, with a motor disability? And just that awareness and experiences of thinking people, your family, your friends, and like, I do, I know somebody that is blind, or I know my grandmother's in a wheelchair. And just building those awareness and sharing those stories with each other is the deeper level of understanding and building awareness. Right, so it's not just about education, it's about actually forming a community. Right. The experience of the exhibit is really aligned to the experience of the workshop itself. And the question that the workshop asks is, who have you excluded today? And we enter into a conversation with others about that experience that others or how either we've experienced or we allow exclusion to happen. And so we'll get into some of the reasons and the barriers and we talk through how we can change some of that through activities around universal design in particular. And then we also ask folks at the end of this to commit to change and what might they do to change their behavior once they leave this workshop. And so it fits really well with the exhibit in, insofar as the exhibit is a physical representation of how we set up exclusion and what can be done to correct that exclusion. Um, my part in the Institute is more or less as a faculty liaison and I'm real interested in, in the research arm that can happen with the Institute. And one of the things that we're really interested in right now with research is looking at transitions from high school to college and then from college into first year of employment. And that is one piece and we're hoping to replicate a very similar program that the University of Washington has done. And they're in their 27th year of a program where they bring in high school students in Washington State who have disabilities and prepare them for college. And it's been proven to be real effective. 
Now, mind you, not all of them go to college, but they form community. And that is probably the biggest thing that these students are, are gaining from this, in addition to how to be more ready for college. So uh, we're seeing if we can do something like that. And, and as Chris mentioned, with helping teachers in uh, elementary school and maybe middle school come up with ways to teach disability awareness, we also are very interested in the research piece. How effective are those interventions? Not only from a teacher's point of view, but can we also learn from the students? If some of this is making a difference in how they view others, especially other, other children. Um, we've, got this, we've got this great banner in the exhibit. It's a bullying banner. And we really are hoping that through looking at what does it mean to either be bullied or to participate in bullying of those who are different, how that may change in the life of a child who has a disability, either a visible or invisible one. Um, so we've got, we've got some research pieces out there. And as Chris mentioned is, is that, yes, we've got, a, we've got a physical exhibit, but we're very much want to be aware of the current situation that the world is in right now, and we need a virtual one. So we're, we're wanting to come up with, right now, a redesign of the physical exhibit so that it, it is a virtual experience that has a focused objective that can be used in a variety of settings, either in industry, higher education, um, high schools. Um, and then we're wanting to come up with a specific video that would address a learning lesson that elementary schools could use around disability awareness. And right now, we're focusing on the, the bullying aspect as a way to take a look at how we can increase disability awareness in the classroom. Out of that, we're hoping that we can have like a, like a guide for teachers that they could use in the classroom. We really wanna help the schools with their understanding how they can help students increase their awareness and how to change this exclusion type of thing that we have in, our, in today's society. Boy, what a timely conversation this is. <laughs> You know, right now, as we're talking, it is June 10th. You know, this won't go to broadcast for a few weeks, but um, St. Louis just lifted their curfew. And all of the conversation, the public conversation, is about inclusion and exclusion and adult bullying. <laughs> really? Mm -hmm. How awesome to hear this being addressed so directly in so many different fashions through the Institute. That's, that's gotta be phenomenal to work on. Yes, it, it really is because you're so right because the language we use about diversity and inclusion can easily be translated in, the, in all areas. There's an intersection of identities. I think the sobering piece is that disability often is not part of that conversation. Uh, it is right. still easily to be pushed aside or ignored or denied. Some of the literature is, is really talking about how individuals with invisible disabilities, that could be learning disabilities, it could be attention issues, just to name a couple, typically almost have to prove to others that they have a disability. And even within the disability community, there's a need to prove that they have a disability. So it's not to say that the disability community is um, inclusive in and of itself, because they also practice exclusionary type of, of behavior, which is pretty much a byproduct of our socialization that we get in, in our growing up. So it's just, there is a challenge, and it's also how do we support each other in our growth, knowing full well that we never fully arrive. What are the key 
components of the workshop and the exhibit too that I always find that helps bridge that communication is the sharing of stories. Stories of, of yourself or of others or your family or friends and building that commonality and sharing that experience just builds the community. It strengthens it and, and there's a shared vision of helping each other. And it's almost like you have to normalize imperfection. I don't know what this concept is that disability is a negative or it's just kind of the human conversation that thinks if you're less than completely typical or that somehow you're less than everything. Right. You know? Oh, I do. There are different types of disability models that are alive and well. One of which is still that carries some residuals is the moral model, which says if you if you have a defect of some sort, uh, it's because of um, a sin in your family or a sin that you've committed. And that's a mark that is part of your punishment. Uh, that is part of our, our ancestral story around disability. Then what's alive and well is the medical model, which pathologizes individuals because they've got something that needs to be fixed or a functional limitations model saying that it's your we can fix these functional limitations and you can be part of us as, as a whole member. The, the thing about those is that they very much can inhibit anyone from being a part of, and this is where this ableistic sort of thinking can happen. And, and, the, and the sadness for me is when I hear or read stories of individuals who actually start internalizing the messaging of saying, Maybe I am inferior to, I am less than others because this is something I've heard all my life. That is a sad part for me is if others can't see themselves as equal to others because of their human status. Right. Which gets thoroughly in the way of the Catholic social teaching, especially with the first, I think it's the first principle around how do we respect the dignity of all humans? And mm -hmm. it's an important lesson and one to keep in mind, especially as we are working toward this awareness that we want to bring into people's minds and hearts. Okay, so the Ability Institute nestled uh, staunchly within SLU. How do you see SLU's mission as being lived out through the Institute? I very much like that question. Um, God is indeed great. What I'm reminded of is that the Catholic intellectual tradition commissions us to seek truth and in doing so to gain greater insight into our God. Um, so any of the work of the Ability Institute is about seeking truth through understanding the human condition. And I think it's through that greater sense of understanding the human condition, we get glimpses into the divine, into that, what, what does it mean to be human? So I think it's how we see, how we as a society and our families and our schools, our faith communities, our religious communities, and, and our friendships, how do we understand diversity and inclusion in light of our differing abilities? And so I'll give you an example of, of seeking truth. There's a, there's a great post-structural theory. It's been around for about 20 years, but still new enough that people are still surprised by it. The name of it is called Crip Theory. And Crip Theory suggests that we all have shifting abilities. Now, I, I say that, a reminder to say that as our bodies age, we are going to develop some sort of dis disability of some sort. And that's that shifting ability mindset. There's a writer of, of a philosophy of disability, his last name's Reynolds, and he, he states that bodies don't have abilities. 
our minds and our bodies are there to give witness to our God-given abilities. So the mind and body don't have abilities. They're already there. And we're already limited in terms of how we can demonstrate those just based on our physical and mental gifts and limitations. He also challenges us to think about on the reasons that we put worth on the human body because our idea that it's limited because of ability, which is not the case. It's just that we've got a variety of bodies that do a variety of things in order to witness the abilities that have been given to us. And I think the, the Ability Institute seeks to discover and add tr more truth to the conversation about disability in today's society. It's also a service to the community. And it's definitely in line with the Jesuit tradition of education that it seeks to challenge and support others in the reflection of each of our parts in exclusion of others based on the other's perceived body and mind differences. Because again, that's what this ableistic way of thinking is, is that the only norm is able-bodied, able-minded. So will we ever arrive at the end of our pursuit of truth? I hope not. Um, much more to learn. And, and to me, it's, it's about this constantly in, encountering mystery. Because as I enter more into the stories of others, there's a mystery that is fascinating to me and one that I never tire of bumping up against. Yeah. And it'll never be exhausted. No, not at all. Yeah, there's, there's a lot we learn from each other in, in the work that we do. Chris, you want to add anything to that? Or? That the, the stories, they change us. I mean, I've learned so much from listening to other stories, and it has impacted me long term. And, I, you know, when you say anything that specialist sticks out with you, every time I'm with the exhibit or I'm with the uh, workshop with people and listening to their stories, I'm changed for the better. And I just think that that whole community of building each other is present. You know, one of the things that, um, one of the things I think about is how has the, how has my experience with the Institute, how has it uh, energized me or motivate me to keep going? Why do this whenever there's so much exclusion in the world? For me, it's, it's, it's those who wish to, it's, it's the interaction with those who wish to engage the question, who have I excluded today? And in doing so, there's a, there's a synergy to create inclusion, although very incrementally. And it's, I relish these incremental steps towards sustainable inclusion. Those give me hope. Yeah. And I'm really hoping that the difficult conversations that we can have with one another help heal those experiences of, of exclusion. It's a, it kind of goes back to this notion of, I might have an explanation for my behavior, but it certainly is not going to excuse me. And I need to learn from and get better insight into the reason why I have acted the way I've done. And so, yes, I think that um, there is, yeah. that can be learned from all conversations around exclusion. I agree. And what you're saying is kind of making me think of the notion of changing a narrative whether it's around disability or inequality, inequality of any kind, but how do we change the narrative? It seems to me that what I'm hearing you two say is that you, you let people bring their story to the table. <laughs> and
and then all of a sudden you've got a story that doesn't exactly jive with your mainstream narrative. And that's how the narrative, the big narrative, begins to change when you realize, oh, it's not the only story. Right. There's a lot right. of other stories out there. Right. So what would you say to either um, a young kid or a parent of a young kid who is either embarrassed by, nervous about, or angry about a disability that they are living with? So for an incoming college student, my suggestion to them, and this comes from my background, I, I used to work in disability services, so I used to meet with students and parents quite a bit. So my suggestion to always to them is to seek out what accommodations that would be available to you. But the nice thing about college is that you don't have to use them. You could have them in your toolkit already, and at any time you can ask to use them. You're not seeking permission, you're just stating that you have them and you wanna set them into place. So that way it's, it's already available. And the great thing for those students as well as for parents is that with the amendment of the Americans with Disabilities Act in 2008, it broadened the definition of disability. It broadens this notion that what is substantially limiting is learning. That's one of the aspects of a, a major life, life activity that gets affected here. Um, and there's also challenge to the process by which someone can get and, and receive accommodations that is also opened up as well. So it's becoming easier and not less cumbersome um, and so many hoops that you think that someone has to jump through. The other piece I would say is, as with any story, there's a history. There's a wonderful history of the fight for equal access. And yes, it's fraught with disappointment and frustration, but I often tell the story of when I was, when I was in high school, I had a friend of mine's mother died of cancer. And she was a wonderful teacher, even in her dying days. She taught her daughters, and uh, I was lucky enough to be around whenever she was mentioning this one lesson, and she would look at all of us and say, the challenge is sweeter than the victory. Oh. I will take on the challenge any day. And that is something that I continue to practice. And that's, uh, that bit of wisdom is something that I, I believe to be true, is I will take on a challenge because after each victory, there's a new challenge. That is a beautiful statement. So yes, I think there's, there's much that um, parents can need, need to learn as well as say their college-age stu students need to learn as well. That's the beauty of the journey. And that's what I really enjoy about the work, is, is the engagement of this common journey. I remember, so this is just a sidebar, but um, so I come from a very large family <laughs> and this, my sister who's closest to me in age has four kids and the oldest two boys are on the autism spectrum and uh, my oldest nephew Seamus was playing with a neighborhood kid. They were about six years old and they were jumping on the trampoline and he, of course, it was all about the sensory, yeah. you know, situation. And they weren't talking at all. He was just bouncing and having a great time. And eventually, the little girl had to go to the bathroom. So she came in to my sister's house, and I was there. And my sister looked at her and said, 
why, why do you come over here every day? There are lots of kids in the neighborhood you could play with. Do you just come over here because of our trampoline? And she said, oh no, I come over because of Seamus. My sister was like, well, why? What's so great about Seamus? And she said, he's magic. <laughs> oh, isn't that great? <laughs> Love him. He is. Yes. And I, I've always taken that and I consider it a real blessing, not without its challenges, but a real blessing to have young people in my life who just are who they are, plain and sinker. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm so grateful for it. I'm just so grateful for it. So it is. But that's what people think about when they realize they've got a child with a disability. But for the folks who can grow into that and love, not the child in spite of the disability, but love the child. Yes. What you're reminding me of there is, is the, the magic of what I can learn, what we can learn from each other, even to teach us how to view life in different ways. So I'll give you an example. Um, in Crip Theory, there's something called Crip Time. And the challenge is, how come someone with cerebral palsy someone who has prosthesis or even somebody with attention issues, how come we are holding them to a time or a pace that those who do not have those um, challenges can do automatically? So maybe we can learn how, how our pace is too fast. What if we actually slow down? What's the hurry in terms of deadlines? So there's, there's so many questions, the whole line of thought with crypt theory. It's, it's fascinating. So there's a lot to learn. So yes. There's a lot to learn. I, would, I think it would be great to meet magical shamans. Yes. So as we um, kind of think about the Institute in general and, and wrapping up this particular podcast, is there anything else that needs to be said that you want to make sure people hear? Before we end this, just say we have to, we cannot say enough thanks of the people who have come before us and helped created this space and you know Dr. Myers who kind of like founded this this whole institute and Dr. Poussin, Dr. Diane Richter, our wonderful advisory board, and all the students who have come through our courses and are now leaders in disability work. We can say that it's moving it forward, but it's it's really uh, a thanks for all those who have come from before and currently involved that, that we are able to continue the growth of our mission. And, and I would probably just add to that is the one of many memories that, that stick out to me is that we've got some Belizean students in our doctoral program in higher education administration. And Alice Peralta is the president of St. John's College in Belize. She has taken on the topic of disability awareness for her country. She will use that term. She will say, I'm doing this for my country. They have no disability laws that protect against discrimination. And she has created the first accessible restroom and parking spot in Belize City on the campus of St. John's. Wow. Part of, I'm a part of history when I witness that. That just shuts my mouth. You know, I just, I'm just, I'm awestruck by that. But 
that's the reality that Belize is facing. And she is, she is a, she's a subversive servant. And I applaud her every time I go down to visit and see that, that accessible restroom and parking spot. That's how change happens. Yes. Amen. (laughs) What a a great story. It is. Well, I certainly hope that the Institute won't just continue, but will flourish and grow and expand because the work that you are doing is unbelievable. So thank you so much for sharing a little bit about it. And um, if people have information, can they contact uh, the two of you? They sure can. And we also have a um, Facebook presence, uh, a build exhibit. And we're also on the School of Education. We're housed in the School of Education. So if you go to the SLU website and type in Ability Institute, it will take you right to us. Very good. So we encourage everybody to learn a little bit more and get involved and spread the word about this incredible initiative. Yes. Thank All you. right. So Mark and Chris, thank you so much for being with us today. You're very welcome. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Appreciate your time. And for everybody out there listening, thank you for tuning in and keep your eyes and ears open for all the places where the Slew Mission is alive and well. More often than not, it's hidden in plain sight. So for now, take care and God bless everybody. Amen. <laughs>